Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right, everybody. How are you out there? What's going on? This is the Other People program. I'm Brad Listy in Los Angeles. Thank you for tuning in. I certainly appreciate that. I am delighted to have Lee Stein back on the program. She has a new poetry collection out on Soft Skull. It is called What to Miss When. This is Lee Stein's fourth time on the show. She was here just last year, I believe, celebrating the publication of her critically acclaimed satirical novel, Self-Care. And I should note that I usually do not have repeat guests on the program in this quick of uh, a turnaround. Usually there's a bit more space between appearances. But Lee's work is very contemporary. It's rooted in popular culture. And in particular, it is concerned with our digital lives and the, you know, what the internet is doing to us at the level of identity, at the level of relationships, uh, at the level of politics. And she wrote this new poetry collection, What to Miss When, during the coronavirus pandemic. She was in quarantine. She was sober. She didn't drink for a uh, hundred days. You're going to hear us talk about that. And she was writing poetry for the first time in a long time, which was related to the fact that she was not drinking. And I think it was too related to the fact that we were all in quarantine and there was a global pandemic happening. But I just felt that it would be useful to talk to Lee, knowing her, knowing what she is concerned with as an artist and as a human being. I felt like it would be relatable and interesting and uh, it certainly was that. So I'm very excited to have Lee back on the show and to share today's conversation with you. I think you're going to enjoy it. Lee Stein is the author of several books, including the memoir Land of Enchantment, 
another poetry collection called Dispatch from the Future. There's the novel Self-Care, which I already mentioned, and another novel called The Fallback Plan. Lee's nonfiction writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the New Yorker Online, Allure Magazine, Elle, Poets and Writers, BuzzFeed, The Cut, Salon, Slate, and more. Lee Stein was the co-founder and executive director of Out of the Binders and uh, BinderCon, which you may have heard of, a feminist literary nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing the careers of women and gender-variant writers. In its time, nearly 2,000 writers attended BinderCon events in New York City and Los Angeles, where they heard speakers that included Lisa Kudrow, Anna Quinlan, Claudia Rankin, Jill Abramson, Effie Brown, Leslie Jameson, Suki Kim, and Adrian Nicole LeBlanc. Lee Stein also moderated the private Facebook community for BinderCon, which was home to more than 40,000 writers. It is worth noting that Lee Stein is no longer affiliated with uh, BinderCon and is no longer on Facebook. And I think we talked about that last time she was here. I think we talk about it again this time around, if my memory serves. It's all in there somewhere. And I should say, too, uh, that I, I feel like in a unique way, Lee Stein's work activates me. <laughs> uh, like after I did the conversation that you're about to hear in just a minute, I noted to myself, I was like, wow, you know, like I really talked a lot. I, got, I get all wound up when I talk to Lee Stein. And then... I suddenly remembered that the last time she was on the show and we were talking about self-care, I want to say somebody on Twitter was like, God, would, you know, would Brad Listy just shut the fuck up? He would not stop talking. <laughs> and uh, I felt terrible because I wasn't trying to, I don't want to jabber at people. And I'm certainly, you know, I'm not trying to mansplain or do anything untoward. And so I, th I think I, I reached out to Lee and I was like, God, if I talk too much, I'm sorry. And she said, no, you know, she was very kind about it and generous and said that it wasn't something she had noticed, but I noticed it. And I think it's a credit to Lee. You know, it's the intellectual energy in her uh, poetry, in her work, and just like her good brain and the things that she thinks about and wonders about, they really resonate with me. And then beyond that, there's probably just some strange, like mysterious alchemical thing that is happening that happens with, you know, to me with certain people and, and probably it happens to all of us, right? There are certain people that you meet where you just talk more than you normally do, or you're funnier, like a little bit funnier than you usually are, depending on who you're around. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, uh, Lee Stein, for whatever reason, gets me talking. And then probably it was caffeine too. I'm usually pretty jittery for these uh, interviews. I drink like a pot of tea before every, <laughs> before every single one of them, usually. Just to like stay sharp, you know? So uh, I thought, oh, you know what I got to do? I got to do a plug. Today's episode is made possible by Harper publisher of Snowflake, the new novel by Louise Nealon. Snowflake is the Nervous Breakdown Book Club pick for September. It is a number one international bestseller, and it has been generating incredible buzz and winning plaudits all over the place. Roddy Doyle calls it, quote, mad and wonderful. 
I thought I was reading one thing, then discovered several times that I was reading a different, even better thing. Snowflake is a powerful and haunting debut from an extremely talented young writer from Ireland. Snowflake is a novel about love and family, about depression and joy, and about coming of age in the 21st century. I'm reading this book right now, actually, and uh, I read about 150 pages from it yesterday in one sitting, and I love it. It's a fully realized world. I like these people. I like being around them. It's very Irish. I feel like I'm on vacation when I read it, kind of. And it's just full of a lot of like human wisdom and heart and humor, all the good stuff. Snowflake by Louise Nealon, available from Harper. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So before we get going, I want to have Lee Stein read a poem from her new collection, What to Miss When, available now from Soft Skull. And this poem is called Everywhere You Look, A Spectacle. This is Lee Stein. I wake up and touch my phone to see who was thinking of me as I slept. Every day, a new series of betrayals among the same players. Andy Samberg in a Hawaiian print shirt, dinosaur spectator, desert sunset, me in my bridesmaid dress, trying to suicide my way out of the time loop. The subtweet is an art like anything else. I do it exceptionally well. I can cry on command alongside the best of them. My touching, off-the-cuff toast was perfected over the last two decades I spent scrolling past lonely avatars. I would never say all you need is love, but I might say, have you ever considered antidepressants? For our honeymoon, we're going to 1994, where the notifications arrive by mail. Anticipation is a turn-on until your meet-cute becomes routine. Kristen Milioti had to teach herself quantum physics on YouTube to escape the rom-com's repetition glitch. All I have to do is sign off. All I have to do is sign off. All I have to do is sign off. Okay, that is Lee Stein reading from her brand new poetry collection called What to Miss When, available now from Soft Skull. 
such a great joy to have Lee back here on the show talking to me or me talking to her <laughs> hopefully a little of both so without any further ado this here is my conversation with Lee Stein last summer the summer of 2020 I started writing these poems in March and it's the fastest book I ever wrote so I wrote the whole book in six months okay okay so let me because uh, I want to I want to talk a little bit about the way that I experienced it when I read it uh, which is one of uh, familiarity like especially as you're covering certain cultural touch points that's sort of affirmed to me my own experience in the pandemic uh, like there was the poem about the last dance that Michael Jordan documentary, um, which I loved. I thought I found it riveting. I feel like it's a it's a documentary that anybody could love, even if you're not like some huge basketball fan, as like a character study. But oh, yeah, that was like just one example of what I felt like was like a shared cultural experience among so many of us during the pandemic. And your your collection is kind of sprinkled with these. There were a lot of places where I found myself nodding in that way. Um, and in a weird way, it's comforting because I think we can all feel sort of isolated in our routines and isolated with our screens. Um, and this book sort of signaled to me that like more or less, we're all going through some version of the same shit, or we all have been going through, I guess we currently are still going through the Delta variant phase of the same shit. <laughs> Right. There was a time where I was like, oh, no, by the time this comes out, like, are we still going to be talking about the pandemic? <laughs> but of course, we're still inside the pandemic. Well, I mean, even our conversation, like we scheduled this conversation prior to what I would characterize as this like Delta variant surge. Right. So in some ways, I'm kind of like, oh, my God, now we're back inside of it. Whereas I thought we would be talking about it a little bit in retrospect. But we're just not clear of it yet because people won't get vaccinated or, uh, you know, there's just too many people still unvaccinated who are spreading it. Right. Right. And th this collection of poetry, it's really a time capsule of this certain moment. It's not, it's not memoiristic. It's not retrospective. It's not me looking back at what happened. It was just literally me documenting what was happening, including in the news, but also including these cultural moments that we all kind of shared. I would say, you know, those among us who are of the laptop class that that kind of watched the pandemic on Twitter, and we all watched Tiger King, and we all watched Love is Blind. There are these certain cultural moments we all lived through together when we were inside our houses. And so that's what I tried to, to document in this book. Okay. Yeah, I, you know, I feel like, um, I kind of, I kind of watch Tiger King. I, I, I got to admit, I, I, whenever I watch anything, it's at night and I often fall asleep regardless of the quality of the content. It's just because <laughs> I'm old and tired. <laughs> um, but you know, I think you talk about the laptop class and experiencing the thing on Twitter, uh, and then also the impulse to document all of this is me. Like I'm certainly this way. I think most people listening, I, I feel like most people are in the laptop class these days, right? I mean, is, is there a, is there a delineation? I mean, I guess there is. Maybe not everybody's as screen addicted as we are, but it sure feels like everybody I know is. Sure, and sure, the the, the audience for podcasts. Um, I have this really vivid memory of a moment early on in the pandemic when I was watching CNN on the couch and I had my phone in one hand. 
And I thought to myself, there's nothing they can tell me on CNN that's more interesting than what I can read on Twitter in real time. Like all the real news and the real unfolding drama was happening on the feed and the and the legacy media like couldn't keep up with the real time hot takes. But also it wasn't just hot takes. It was like doctors on Twitter, you know, describing what was happening before the the talking heads could catch up to it. So I think social media is just such a it's like. How how could you even talk about the pandemic without talking about social media? Yeah, I've had that. I've made that same case to myself and to others about uh, Twitter as a news aggregator. Like I've had to distance myself from it um, as a participant. Like it's, like I don't really tweet, uh, but I do read Twitter. I use it as a news aggregator just because I think it's the best news source and. You have to sort of put an asterisk next to that because you do have to become pretty good at parsing. There's a lot of bullshit on Twitter and uh, like misinformation and disinformation. So it's not the easiest thing to go wade through. But I think if you get a little bit savvy at it, you can start to understand who's a legitimate source and who might just be opining or who might have ill intent or something. But um, like you said, the legacy media companies cannot keep up. And I think about the unfolding of the pandemic. I think about the Trump presidency, like as a narrative, as an unfolding real-time narrative. Uh, I don't understand how you could possibly grapple with it at all if you weren't on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And like, look, there's so many, I, I just think there's going to be so many books that come out about this time. And mine is just one among them. But we're, so many nonfiction books have already come out about the pandemic that's still ongoing. Well, I have to say I'm a little bit envious of you for writing this poetry collection, which is um, like so relatable and smart, like just all the things that you are in your work. Like I find you so smart and funny and just like a good solid observer and an honest broker who's willing to change her mind. I think that might be my favorite quality about you is the fact that you're, you're so open about the fact that you're, changing your mind a lot, which maybe is undervalued these days. Um, but it's also a poetry collection, which, you know, I'm working on my book about this and I had a very similar impulse to document it. But what I did was I kept a daily diary and then I also logged every breaking news story that I possibly could on a daily basis. And I'm now in the process of having to go back through and reread it all. So it's like I've given myself like millions of words to read. And I'm going to collage it. So I'm, I mean, it's just like the most tedious. I'm watching like all the John Voight videos where he talks about like the coming revolution and like all the craziness, like in a very meticulous way, I'm having to kind of re-ingest and it's very maximal and time consuming. And I'm on Do you like, have a stopping point? Like, do January, you have a frame? Yeah. January 20th was always the idea that I would do the last four. Like I started the Monday after Labor Day and I would go until Inauguration Day just because I had a sense that that end game was going to be a shit show. And it exceeded my expectations. It honestly did. <laughs> like not only- right, you got the Capitol riot, of course. That's what I mean. That's the end of act two. Like it not only exceeded my expectations in terms of the shit show, but it also exceeded my expectations in terms of how it delivered- like plot points, like, like effortlessly just like delivered a like a ready-made narrative. You know what I'm saying? Like it was all there, yeah. but it's just a monumental undertaking. And I'm watching all these books come out 
um, like so fast, you know, and I'm just like, Oh, I feel slow. I feel like, like I chose the wrong path. You know, I gave myself this like massive soup to sort of like sift through. And then I, I think the idea is that I'm going to juxtapose it against my domestic life, which you sort of did in this poetry collection, because how could you write about this time without acknowledging like just sort of the routines that you fall into and the inside life that we live during the pandemic, especially in its like lowest points when things were really bad and especially when we didn't quite know what we were dealing with, you know? Right. But I think what you said a minute ago also makes me think about constraint. You know, it's like the relationship that artists have between, you know, form and formlessness, like that, that giving yourself this, this timeline with in which to write the book or deciding arbitrarily, it's going to start here and it's going to end here is what allowed you to write it in the same way. Like, cause I asked soft skull, you know, they acquired the book and I said, well, can I, can I finish it in November? Like, so I can see what happens during the election. And they were like, there's no time. You have to finish this book by September 1st. And I was like, oh, okay. So, <laughs> but there was a part of me that's like, but I'm not going to know the end of the story. Right. I'm not going to know who's elected when I finish this book. So I think the penultimate poem in the book is about the Democratic National Convention um, for Joe Biden and about Abraham Lincoln and about grief. But I finished this book not knowing who would be elected our next president. Wow. Yeah, I was I was kind of wondering as I was reading because I, I could feel it building in a, a, a linear timeline and I was wondering how far it was going to go. And I was also thinking about publication schedules and like, wow, you know, like this is all so fresh, you know, and um, so recent. And so it, I guess it doesn't surprise me to learn that you had to, the publisher was like, nope, you got to stop if we're going to make this thing come out. <laughs> yeah, and this is something that poets like famously struggle with when you're putting together a poetry collection, how do you organize the poems? But I also got to work around to that because it's basically chronological. There were, there are a couple that are out of the order that I wrote them in, but they're almost entirely chronological. It's just following me in lockdown in my house yep, yep. <laughs> watching TV. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think the impulse towards documentation and also chronological documentation is probably going to be a recurring theme in a lot of books about this time and these experiences. Like it's the most natural fit. I guess there are going to be some people who jump around a little bit, but um, I don't know. I mean, I can't think of a, a better way to do it personally. And also just, I think we have to acknowledge too, that the impulse to document is a reflection on just how crazy human existence has gotten in a very short amount of time relative, you know, over the past few years, I know it's always been pretty nutty, but things really have escalated. Have they not? Am I misapprehending this? I feel like the last five years have gotten so batshit crazy. I mean, yeah, that's what I'm told over and over again, that it's just crazier and crazier. I think this for me is like the comfort of poetry. It's like when I read really old poetry, which is not something I used to enjoy doing. But now when I read older poetry, I'm like, oh, these people survived. Like, you know, like the Civil War happened, like poetry was written about it, you know, and like the country moved on. So it's like, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of hysteria about we're living through the worst time that's ever been. And maybe we are, but I can't, I can't like live my life at like an 11 every day. Right. Right. Yeah. I think the things that distinguish it are nuclear weapons, like possible biological weapons, like a mass destruction. Like I know they, I mean, just the possibility of that, like the, the sophistication of weaponry distinguishes this time from the civil war in terms of its ability to, to, to like wipe everything out and then climate 
change climate i mean you're seeing the fires i mean like you're on that coast you're experiencing that but even here we had poor air quality on the east coast because of fires like in montana right and you know Oregon. i got to take a moment to to tie together people who are denying or like resisting vaccines which have done like a pretty like are pretty miraculous in, in my view in terms of how quickly they came together and how well they've worked but also people who have denied who spent years and years denying climate science and calling it a hoax and now we're all living in this mess and it's like do these people are these people ever going to come around with a mea culpa i've never seen like a, a mea culpa that satisfies me like they were wrong they've always been wrong climate science you know climate change is obviously real quit being a fly in the ointment you know it's uh it's frustrating I guess I'm just stating the obvious. Something I've been thinking a lot about through the whole pandemic and again now with the rise of the Delta variant is like the the debate we're having about mandates, whether that's like a mandated vaccination card or mandating masks, is like this tension between what the government can do and how much liberty and freedom the citizens have. And this conflict is like goes back to the founding of America. Like this was the conflict at the beginning, right? That we, we had this whole revolution for our freedom. And I just think it's so, it's so messy because of course, of course I support, you know, obviously I'm pro vaccine, I'm vaccinated and I'll wear a mask if you tell me to wear a mask. But like these people that are bristling against their freedoms being um, taken away or impinged upon, like this is a very American conflict. Yeah. I should say, too, I didn't even bother to ask you if you were vaccinated. I could have just stepped in it. What if you were, like, resistant and I was sitting there just, like, <laughs> maligning people who aren't vaxxed? But uh, I get frustrated because I want this to be put behind us, and I believe very strongly that this is the way. You know, people get vaccinated. We're going to quash this. But um, I think that we're in a situation where I'm guessing the best way forward or one of the best way forwards is if private enterprise – takes the lead uh like disney just announced that they're not going to allow their employees to come back unless they're vaccinated and i applaud that like great a big company like that other companies should maybe follow suit or will feel empowered to follow suit like maybe that is a better way than having the government say you've got to have a card you know like however it happens fine but you you know we can't send our kids to school without a measles vaccination as, right as a, that's true you know, and, and so people don't have their heads screwed on straight. Like this sort of stuff already exists and nobody batted an eye about it until COVID. Not only yeah. that, I, uh, it was my birthday yesterday and I got a massage and I had this <laughs> great Israeli masseuse who like was just all business and like a good masseuse and like sort of like hurt me, but I was like, oh, I feel better now. Like that kind of thing. <laughs> and he's like talking to me and everything I said, I'd be like, so what do you think about my foot? He's like, you have plantar fasciitis. You need to get boot. I give you link. You know, like, it was like <laughs> he, he knew everything, you know, and he, uh, he's talking to me and he's like, I just get to, I, you know, he's like, I just get third shot yesterday. I get booster. And I was like, what, you can do that now? And he's like, I listen to Israel. I don't listen to United States. <laughs> he just like went into Safeway and got a third shot. Right. And, and did it. And, uh, you know, he was, uh, you know, he was not even the least bit apologetic. He's like, look, they're throwing these shots away, which is true. So you're not taking it. Which from... is such a waste. Yeah, it's such horrible. a waste. But uh, anyway. What but was this I... is part of the dilemma because it's like there are trade-offs 
there are trade-offs with everything, right? But it's like, do we want to go in a more authoritarian direction like Israel or China? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think ideally everybody would do it of their own volition, but as a right. matter but as a matter of public health, you know, there does come a time where it's like, you know, we've got to get people responsible. We've got to get people well, otherwise this thing's going to just continue and the virus could mutate to the point where it uh it starts to evade vaccines. And as an extension of my little masseuse anecdote, he was telling me, because in addition to being an expert on massage therapy and plantar fasciitis and posture and sleep and all these other things, he's also <laughs> studied the vaccine science uh, extensively. And he was telling me, so I, I say this as secondhand, uh, hoping that it's accurate, but he was telling me that the mRNA vaccine technology that they've used in these COVID vaccines at Moderna and Pfizer is going to be used in f subsequent vaccines for like the flu. And he said that these mRNA vaccines for flu shots are going to be like 90 something percent effective at blocking the flu. So like the flu could be eradicated by this wonderful science. And yeah. the question becomes, are people going to resist that too? Like right. it, it's just nonsense. Like this is what's, this is, it just happens to be a, like a scientific slash technological pivot point with COVID and with this vaccine technology that's actually really, seems really good. Uh, but of course, people think they're being microchipped and turned into magnets and all this insanity. And, you know, I, I don't know how we get past that other than like kind of waiting it out and just repeating calmly that it's inaccurate. No, this, this is what I'm most worried about is like, what's the end game? Like you're in L.A., right? So you have to mask again. And there's a new mask mandate. Sure. Yeah. I don't go inside and anywhere without a mask. And my kids, I have a disabled kid. So like, you know, kids are fairly have been fairly unaffected by covid but you know there are there are risks risk factors that go beyond just covid with him so like we have to be extra careful yeah so we're watching to see if we're going to have another mandate in new york um I'm, i live in the suburbs of new york but it's like if if we all go back and we all mask again and we go inside wh what's the end game here right because like we thought that the vaccine would be the end game that if we if we got enough people vaccinated we would stop the spread but that hasn't happened so far. So are we just going to have cycles of going in and out of lockdown for years? People will people will go crazy. They'll uh, revolt. Yeah, I think people are already going. I mean, people have been going crazy since the beginning of this thing. But um, my masseuse, not to keep bringing him up, but he's like, I have client who connected to White House. He does. He said this to me. And he's like, <laughs> the reason that the White House has not already advocated for a booster shot the way that they have in Israel is not because they don't believe that the booster shot will help. I think like I would I would happily get a third Pfizer right now because I was I was vaccinated in January, February, like early. Wow. Because of my son, uh, we were in the first group, and so uh, I'm probably due. My antibodies are waning, right, or whatever. <laughs> Got waning. I can tell from the screen. Like, yeah, I can I'm tell. my sickly pallor, you know, uh, but. I just, uh, I think that what he said was that the, the administration will not advocate for this yet, because if they do, they're worried that the anti-vax community and all those like disinformation spreaders will use it as evidence that they don't work. And that, you know what I'm saying? It'll just be further fuel. So they want to try to get more people just first round, second round, and then we'll go to the booster later. But I think it's coming. I bet this fall they'll start doing boosters. Yeah. And I'll get one. I'll be happy to get one.
Give me, I'll take as many shots. I'll get them all. Give me the Johnson and Johnson. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to talk about, um, like about your collection in an overarching way, kind of earlier in the conversation, just so we can give listeners, um, and like an idea of its thematic concerns and forgive me if I've missed anything, but I kind of took notes as I was reading and I came up with what I felt like were some through lines in the narrative. Like obviously there's the timeline, just the linear experience of the collection where it's following you in a kind of diaristic way through six months or so of your life in the pandemic of 2020. And, you know, but there's uh, there's obviously COVID there's alcohol because you wrote this collection sober. And I think we talked about that. Weren't you early in this, like, I'm not drinking anymore phase, like, or, or change, whatever it happens to be? Yeah, I ended up not drinking for 104 days. And I might have talked, I might have been drinking again when I talked to you. But I, we definitely talked about alcohol because I, I would not have written this book if I hadn't stopped drinking because I hadn't written poems for about 10 years. And I stopped drinking 11 days before or I stopped drinking two weeks before Connecticut went into lockdown. And so by the time we were in lockdown, I'd been sober and I started writing poems again. And it was like, it was like, I didn't even know, like I had the key to the locked room inside my own brain. And then they just started pouring out of me. Interesting. Pouring out of you like a glass of Chardonnay. So, okay. So we'll get back to alcohol. I want to talk about that, but I just want to go through my little list here. Um, COVID alcohol, I think dystopia as a general theme. I mean, the dystop, like the just the the escalating dystopia that we live in. It seems like a lot of times, uh, Judaism and the Holocaust and history. Um, there's a little bit of like American political history. You uh, you reference the poem that um, talks about Lincoln, but a lot of it I felt like was Holocaust history, yeah, uh, Jewish history, and like I think it, it's like you're working in your mind to sort of, like you said earlier, like reflect on how people survived these things, like these horrible things and wrote about them and how, you know, humanity moved on in some way from them. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, I did a lot of that too. You know, it's like nice to have some context and frame of reference and the comfort of knowing that like plagues have happened before. (laughs) Yeah. The comfort of knowing it could always be worse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I think uh, the, what is it? Oh, I think the political transformation that we talked about last time you were on, um, the experience that you had in the uh, freelance feminist community, if I can use that term, I'm stealing <laughs> yeah, from sure. you. I like that though, you know, and uh, you know, when you were doing BinderCon and then I think that led up to you writing self-care where you, where you, you had sort of been in this community and were sort of a, not sort of, you were a moderator for a community that was uh, dedicated to feminist causes and it got stressful for you. We talked all about that and it kind of led to an awakening or a shift in your thinking um, around politics, online life, like so many different things. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that is referenced in the book. Like you're still sorting through that, which I can appreciate because... Uh, you know, I'm still sorting through things that happened to me when I was in third grade <laughs> that seemed very small and tedious and I can spend a lifetime, you know, like worrying about these things. Um, 
So yeah, I also think like if if you're a writer and you run out of material, you should just like start an online community because you'll <laughs> you'll get so much material you'll never run out. It like feed the well for years. Okay, and but I mean an online community, speci- specifically one with like like a hot button cultural slash political bent. I mean that's gonna just, add or just around shared identity. Just pick any identity and just start a community around it and just watch it like explode. Okay. <laughs> you heard it here first. This is your writing prompt. <laughs> uh, and then culture, you know, because like this is a, another thing that I love about your work is that it's got this great combination of like high and low mind. And I say that like somewhat tongue in cheek, but I think you know what I mean. Like uh, sometimes I feel like writers don't want to admit that they're in, invested in pop culture or don't want to engage with it because they want to respite from it or they just want to live above it or something. But I feel like your work is really, is both really smart, but unafraid to um, mingle with that stuff. And I always appreciate that because that's really where most of us are. Um, I know, I know there's a place in like uh, literature for exclusively high-minded concerns you know i don't want to say there's not room for it or that it shouldn't exist but i always appreciate work that's like both really smart but also like right down with the people right right so there's that and then i think social media you know like you said you can't talk about the times that we live in or the experience of the laptop class and how we went through this pandemic without referencing social media and what it's like to read the feed so did I miss anything? Is there anything in there that, that you felt like you were addressing in these poems that I did not at least touch upon in some way? No, I don't think so. I mean, I'll say a little bit about the frame for the collection, which was Boccaccio's Decameron from the 14th century, which I had never read before the pandemic because I saw it as one of my one of those, you know, assigned reading from school that like would be boring. I, I have a real like rebellious uh, stance against like homework, <laughs> like yeah, assigned reading. So of course I'd never read it. And then I started reading it during the pandemic and I was like, Oh, this is totally different than I thought because people assume it's about the plague in Florence, which it is, but only in the introduction, because then these like, these like rich young singles go to this villa in the countryside and just tell stories to each other every night while they drink wine. And the stories are funny and weird and include cross-dressing and, and sex and animals. It's, it's totally bizarre. And so once I realized that I realized I could kind of frame the poetry collection as, you know, the pop culture or these modern day fables, like, like the Michael Jordan documentary that I consumed during the pandemic. So that was my intention behind all the pop culture poems that are kind of the center of the book is to make these kind of modern, modern fables that, that entertained me while I, you know, waited to find out if I would die of this virus. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you, I guess I'll ask you about it now since you just mentioned it, but Michael Jordan, just as sort of like a sidebar conversation. I watched that documentary and was riveted by it. I lived through all those bulls championship years. You know, I watched a ton of basketball. I'm from Indiana. You sort of have, yeah, to, yeah. you know, so you have to know basketball. And I'm from Chicago. I had the three P T shirt. Yeah. So, okay. So this is like, he's like the ultimate champion. Yeah. And yet when I watch him and I, I re, I've read about him too, anecdotally through the years about his like competitive mania. And I've always made a joke about this with sports fan friends of mine, how 
like American culture valorizes competitive mania. Like that is deeply unhealthy to me, you know, like there's always these stories when it comes to pro football quarterbacks, especially like they always talk about how like he's so competitive. He hates to lose at anything. I, I played Monopoly with him once. And when he lost, he flipped the board over and punched a hole in the drywall. Right. And it's like, wow, awesome. Like he's so competitive. And it's like, actually he's mentally ill and like needs help. You know, like this is not something we should be clapping for. And like Michael Jordan, as great as he was on the court, like I wonder at it, you know, like he still holds these same grudges, like, like 25 years later. Yeah. Uh, He's still like, like burns with this like hatred of his opponents and like, doesn't forget a slight. And it's just like, is everything okay there? Like, is this something we should, is this something we should clap for? I guess is the question I, that always comes to mind for me. I think for me watching it, there was almost something refreshing about it because of how obsessed we are right now with virtue and morality and, and getting rid of things that don't, um, you know, meet a certain kind of purity test. And so to just watch this like American hero who maybe has a bad personality, <laughs> like to watch hours of this, I mean, I found it really refreshing. And and that's what people would say when I said, I'm watching this, like I can't stop watching The Last Dance. And they would be like, I heard he doesn't come across as very nice. Right. I'm like, well, I'm not watching it to see if Michael Jordan is nice. Like that's not why I'm watching it. And it was interesting too how he – he turned down what did he turn down he turned down like political endorsements yes he wouldn't he because he said republicans buy shoes too that's like the famous quote back in the day where they were like we need you to stand up and stump for jesse helms's opponent or whatever the former north carolina um right like, like bigot um you know senator i think and and uh jordan wouldn't do it because he didn't want to hurt his shoe sales but i think in the in the last dance I want to say he's addressing that. I don't know. You know, he had a reason for it. I forget exactly what his defense was, but that was the criticism. Right. So I'm watching this like at the same time I'm on Twitter seeing like Netflix and Amazon put out their Black Lives Matter statements. So it's like I'm I'm watching how corporate America uh, is like using the language of social justice um, to appeal to customers. And here's this flashback to the past where Michael Jordan is like, I'm not even going to choose sides. Like I'm not picking politics. Like I'm staying out of this. It, it just shows me how, how much has changed. Right. That's a good point. You know, how all these corporations have co-opted all these social justice movements. And I don't know, there's a lot of cynical takes on it where it's like, <laughs> You know, like you say, they're only doing this to sell subscriptions or to like. Well, I'm one of the cynics because I'm like, pay taxes. Like, pay, why am I paying more taxes than you are? Like, yeah. So, so I'm a, I'm a raise the corporate tax rate kind of gal. Yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't be more with you. Um, but I guess like along with watching Jordan, who is kind of like anachronistic. Like there is something anachronistic about him. He just doesn't give a fuck, and. uh he is who he is. I found myself wondering as somebody who's relatively not competitive. Um, I don't feel super competitive. I certainly not with other people. Um, I know there's that whole thing where everybody always says, well, I'm competitive with myself. I, I, <laughs> you know, I do want to like get the best out of myself, I think, but like maybe not even that much either. Like I don't, I'm not wired up like that. Um, I don't get pissed off when I lose to a, to an excessive degree. And I wonder if this is actually a deficiency in me. And if you want to do anything great in this life, uh, 
if that's what you got to be like. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, does great yeah. achie- does great achievement require that kind of wiring? And do you have to just be willing to break a lot of eggs to make the omelet? You know what I'm saying? Like that kind of thought process. Yeah, I feel very competitive. And then I feel conflicted about it because I feel like I'm supposed to do like personal development work on myself to not be so competitive. But I'm like, but if I were less competitive, then the people I'm competing against would beat me. (laughs) So it's like, I don't want to step on the sidelines. Like I don't want a participation trophy. I want to win. Yeah. I mean... I guess I need more of that, but I, there can't, but that can't be everybody though. Do you know what I'm saying? No, it's not everybody. And I, I wouldn't like impose my, I wouldn't impose my grudge holding mindset on others. It's just (laughs) like, I'm very motivated by spite. Okay. Well, so is Michael Jordan. That's right. That's why I loved it. (laughs) Okay. So yeah. And I think I I always think back or lately I've been thinking back on uh, the late George Carlin. Like he had this great bit where he's like, most people aren't very good at anything. And it's so true. Like most people just aren't very good at anything. That's so sad. But I think I'm one of them. I'm like, yeah. No, No, I'm dead serious. (laughs) I I, I, like to be really, really good at something like George Carlin was at comedy or Michael Jordan was at basketball. Some of this, most of this is just a genetic lottery thing. Like, Right. That's true. And most everybody's like trying hard. They're, most people are doing their very best, just not very good at anything. They're not really good at anything. But Brad, I think you're like the Michael Jordan of literary podcasting. I don't even know if that's true. <laughs> I think I'm being overtaken by all kinds of – there's so many literary podcasts now. Who's to say? I mean, you know, it's just like it's a it's a low barrier to entry flooded market. I think I've been doing it a long time, which – you know, I guess helps me in some way or, or is like a sign of, uh, progressing mental illness, <laughs> but I, you know, I, who knows, who knows, but I don't care. Like I don't sit around watching the numbers or tracking what other people are doing. I don't care. I like my show. Yeah. That seems very healthy. Okay. I'm trying, I hope so, but maybe I should be caring more, you know, like I think of like Howard Stern, who's like the current cultural embodiment of like success as a, as a radio broadcaster or pod, you know, whatever you want to call it or Joe Rogan or whatever. I feel like these guys are like, like Howard Stern's definitely competing and calling out his enemies. <laughs> like, I've got, That's true. I've got none of that. I've got zero. Uh, I need maybe more of it. I don't know what that means about me, but that's where I am. So, you know, Lee, we don't have to psychoanalyze this and figure it out today, <laughs> but I'm just confessing to you now for some reason. <laughs> Um, I want to talk to you about alcohol because I think this is uh, a fascination to me personally. I think it's probably fascinating to a lot of people listening just at a baseline level, but also maybe especially because of the pandemic. I mean, what else are you going to do when you're sitting at home? You can't do anything social. It seems like a opportunity. The numbers are really dramatic. I mean, a lot of people increase their alcohol consumption during the pandemic. You're absolutely right. Okay. Uh, how, like, first of all, you said 104 days. This means you're drinking again. Yes, I am. More so than before? Did you come back out of it like, like, a, like a maniac? Or did, did you just kind of like, did you, or did you uh, reduce your intake after having this period of abstinence? 
Well, I think you and I might have talked about this last time, but I was like really conflicted about stopping because I thought my only option was to get sober for life because I have friends who are sober and who have been through 12-step programs and they're sober forever. I mean, they're committed to their sobriety and they use sober as an identity label. They identify as sober. And that was very scary to me um, because it seemed like such a huge commitment, even though they say, you know, one day at a time. Um, So... When I found, when I had the idea, you know, to buy this book, I ordered this book by this woman, Annie Grace, for a 30-day experiment. I thought I could do a 30-day experiment. And during that 30-day experiment, I started writing poems again. I felt, I felt incredible. It was like the beginning of the pandemic and everyone was like freaking out and having panic attacks. And I was like, I feel amazing. (laughs) It was was totally at odds with um, the rest of the country. But um so I kept going to 60 days and I kept going to 90 days. And then last summer, my book self-care was about to come out. I was anxious about that. I was also bored. It became boring not drinking. Like I needed, not boring, but the boring part was the pandemic. It was like the, the sameness and the tedium of the pandemic. Every day was the same. And so I did start drinking again last summer. I would say I'm drinking about a third of what I once did. What does that mean? Like in day to day? <laughs> just a bot, just a couple, bo- a bottle with lunch and a <laughs> bottle with dinner. <laughs> so I would say before I stopped, I was drinking two glasses of wine seven days a week. Okay. So now I would say I would drink, I drink one or two glasses of wine, maybe two days a week. Oh, that's good. So yeah, I I've... try to make it like a spe- like a, it's like I would, I'm trying to make it like a weekend treat, like a thing I do on the weekend and not a thing I have to do every day. All right. So here's where I come in. Cause I used to drink too. Like, cause I'm like, like, I think we talked about in the self-care conversation, I'm very susceptible to any like well-being or health news. If you tell me <laughs> that like, I need to moisturize, like I will, I will moisturize. Like I will take care of my skin. I'll wear the hat. Like I'm just, I'll do anything you tell me if it's uh good for me, you know, like I'm very susceptible to that sort of stuff. So red wine, supposedly good for you. Supposedly, allegedly. Allegedly. That's what I drink. And it was like, men can have two glasses. Women can have one glass. That's sort of the popular notion. So I was having two glasses of wine a day, seven days a week. And I did that for a long time. And then I think there was, you know, there's a period where I even talked about it on this show years ago where I was like, I think I'm going to stop. I think this is like, why am I doing this? Is this like Dumbo's feather? Like, why do I need to have these two glasses of wine every day? Right, because it becomes a habit. Yeah. But then I stopped and then I was like, but I wasn't getting fucked up. I never had more. I never wanted more. I like having wine with dinner. Like, that's when I would have it. It went with the food. It was good. I enjoyed it. I'm like, I live a pretty austere existence anyway. Like, I'm not doing any drugs, you know, whatever. And uh, I now do one glass of wine a day just with dinner. And I, I guess that's okay. I don't know. You know, these things, I'm also Buddhist. So I'm constantly reading things where they're like, you know, Ooh, the Buddha said any intoxicant is bad. And I'm like, Oh, I'm a failing as a Buddhist now. And you know, all that kind of stuff kind of plays in my head. We, we get so many messages and like, it's up through up to us to sort through all the different messages. But I just found that I was I was stuck in this loop where I wanted things to be different, but I kept doing the same thing over and over again. And and I just thought I can't like something has to change because I'm saying one thing and I'm doing another. 
And that, that dissonance is like very uncomfortable for me because I, because again, I'm Michael Jordan, you know, like I'm an, I'm an upholder. Like when I have a goal, I go for it. Like I don't need anyone, you know, monitoring me. I really go for it. So alcohol was really the one part of my life where I was like, I want this to be different, but I keep doing the same thing over and over again. It's not changing. Oh, so alcohol was specifically the thing that you wanted to change. It wasn't like a, a maybe like a bigger picture desire. Like I want my life to change. It was like, I specifically want my drinking habits to change. And it wasn't. Yeah. Oh, cause I yeah. was, what I was going to say, and I don't mean to interrupt is that I feel like maybe if you're in a rut in some other way, like your uh, professional life or your love life or just life in general feels blah. Sometimes if you make what I guess you might characterize as a cosmetic change like this, like it can, it can help to kind of, uh, shift things for you. So, yeah. but it sounds like for you, it was a specific thing. It was really this. This was like the one the one corner of my life where I was like, you know, I would like it to be different and I'm just stuck on how to make it different. I don't know. Because every day at five o'clock, this is part of it too, is like I already worked from home before the pandemic and that glass of wine was like a way to say the work day is over and now it's leisure time because everything was the same because I'm just in my house from morning till night. Um, so it was just a habit. It was a pattern. It was a habit I reinforced every day. That's what I do. Yeah. Is it okay? <laughs> thing, right? You want someone to be like, it's fine. It's fine. And I wanted that too. It's fine. You're not so bad. You know what? I would read books and go on the internet. Like, is it so bad? Like, how bad is it? Yeah. Like, but I'm not as bad. And I would read, I read so many addiction memoirs. And when I read addiction memoirs, like the amount of alcohol people drink in addiction memoirs was so much greater than what I was drinking. So right. that- that made me feel like I was fine. Yeah. That's how I feel. It's like you, then you like read it like, or like a rock and roll memoir or something. Like you read about Motley Crue. You're like, I'm good. This is good. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I've got my shit together. Uh, but I, I think ultimately the litmus that I come to is that if it's affecting relationships with people I care about, that would be when it's a problem. Um, and it's not the case for me. Uh, I would love to be an elegant stoner. This has always been my aspiration. One of these like high functioning people who just like takes a gummy and like is a better version of themselves and like doesn't seem stoned yet is just kind of giggly and nice. I can't fucking do it. I don't know. I don't have the brain chemistry for it. And I'm, I'm disturbed by like the interviews I read with Seth Rogen about how much weed he smokes, that he smokes it all day and that he has to wake up in the middle of the night to have more, but he's like, no, it's fine. My doctor says it's fine. And well, he's also, I think, I mean, A, he's been doing this since he was like 14, but I think he genuinely is one of these people who has the brain chemistry to handle it, um, certainly better than I can. And there was a funny quote from him in an interview where he's like, you know, people are like, you know, Seth, you don't need this. Uh, and he's like, yeah, the world's terrifying to me. And he's like, you know, I don't need shoes either, but if I walked around barefoot, I'd cut my feet up everywhere. <laughs> you know, he's like, I smoke weed. It's like wearing shoes when I go out into wow. the world. And I'm like, okay, you know, he seems like an, I mean, shit, he's getting his, his work done. You know, he That's seems, true. He's this made... is, it's just me being judgmental, but it's like, yeah, it's me being judgmental. But when I read about the, the, the quantity he consumes in a day, you know, like if I had to wake up in the middle of the night to have more wine because I couldn't get through the night without wine, I think that would be alarming. Well, yeah, I mean, I think again, the Buddha, like I always filter things through a Buddhist lens just because I read so much of it, but it's like they would just say that you're using it to anesthetize yourself and you're not really addressing the root causes of suffering. Um, and in fact, you right. ex over time, you exacerbate them. You know, it's like fool's gold. 
And I think there's some truth to it, you know, but I also, I think empathize with people who are living a lay life, you know, who aren't, um, you know, monks and nuns in a monastery somewhere, but who are in the shit in a city like Los Angeles or wherever, you know, um, or who are dealing with like mental illness that they would otherwise be treating with like SSRIs or corporate pharmaceuticals. Like if weed helps you, like I'm open to the fact that it would, you know, I think there are different possibilities for people neurochemically and pharmacologically. Um, so I don't want to be too closed about it, but I think, you know, you, in your poetry collection, it made me think, I think it addresses this, but it also made me think of like how we get better as a species, how we get better as a country, like humanity's got a shift conscious at a consciousness level. If we're going to make it, it seems to me. And what I often think is that we have to make some pretty radical shifts in how we consume and how we relate to the world and to each other, uh, like radical shifts behaviorally, but also radical shifts philosophically. Like we have to really change big time, uh, and become more austere. <laughs> like the way mm. that I think we would, I think we would, if you told the average person what they probably have to do, if we're going to make it, if their grandkids and great grandkids are going to have like a habitable planet, they would scoff. Like I think about my own aunts and uncles where I were like, you know, you really might have to cut your meat intake by 70% to help reduce, you know, methane. And, you know, like those kinds of like lifestyle changes that they would just go like, what? Like, no, you know, and that's just one example. You know, I, I guess there's um, the asterisk that I need to put next to it again is that I'm filtering it through a Buddhist lens again, where I'm like, this is sort of what they're talking about. And if you lived more like uh, like a monk or like some sort of austere person who's like off in a cave somewhere or something or living on an ashram um you know maybe that's just me like with a narrow vision and there are different ways of doing it but i do feel like we need to make radical shifts and quickly and i worry about our ability to change that fast well, what you're saying is reminding me that when I was writing these poems, I was sharing them with Chelsea Hodson, and I had told her that I'd stopped drinking, and I was writing them, and, and she was like, have you ever read the Stoics? And I was like, well, those are other classic books I never read. Right. She's like, I think, she's like, I think you would like it. Like, I think you should try. Like, she's like, they're like tweets. Like, you could read them. So I read, like, some Marcus, Marcus Aurelius um, but I think this connects to Michael Jordan, too. There is something that's that's stoic about, you know, the, the discipline of the body, the discipline of the mind that I'm sure connects to Buddhism, too, that it's like um, there's something disciplined in denying yourself and not giving in to every temptation and every craving and into hedonism and pleasure to to thinking more critically about, you know, even even what thoughts you're having. So there's something about that that's like very attractive to me, the stoic mindset. Yeah, there's a ton of crossover. And by the way, I should say a couple things, because I know you thank Chelsea Hodson and your acknowledgments. Um, she has been a friend of mine uh, for a while now and also like a great helper. Uh, she's a great, she has a great uh, spirit about her when it comes to creative work and 
is just so generous to so many people. Like uh, over and over again, I either hear from people or I read in acknowledgement sections that Chelsea Hodson was either an early reader or a cheerleader or an encourager uh, yeah, in some way. Great. And she, I don't know, I want to give her a shout out because I wish more people were like that. Yeah. Um, so alcohol in terms of creativity, like you talk about quitting and then suddenly poems start flying out of you. Um, the, I would imagine that's an incentive to keep sober. You're like, wow, my creative output is fantastic while I'm not drinking. Like that's not a small thing. Uh, have you noticed that it is receded? I know these things are cyclical anyway, but like when you start drinking again, does suddenly the, did the poem stop coming or did you find yourself at a loss for words? <laughs> yeah, it was definitely, this was just felt like a once in a lifetime experience because I was so creative. I had this burst of energy and creativity. Not only was I writing the poems, I like had a new idea for a novel. Then I had a new idea for like a nonfiction book. I just had like so many documents I was writing all the time, which was very unusual for me. Um, and then that, that new, that honeymoon phase ended, you know, it, it slowly faded away even before I started drinking again. I just, I wasn't feeling it anymore. And I think that's probably one of the reasons I did start drinking again, because I was out of that honeymoon period of new sobriety. So would I try it again in the future? Yeah, I think so. But I don't know if it's something I could ever replicate. Um, What's that Lori Moore? You had this great Lori Moore quote uh, where she talks about like, you know, are you feeling depressed? Do you want to get over it? Like stop eating sugar, stop eating carbs, stop drinking like basically like go completely austere do yeah, that for, for three days yeah do that for do that for three days and then put everything back in and bam and you'll feel better yeah and i think there's some truth to it i think this is what i was getting at earlier when i talked about um wanting to make a change you know you were specifically wanting to change your drinking habit like routine but i think sometimes when we make a change in one department of our life it has especially something that's really been difficult for us like when we break a bad habit or we undertake some program of change as like so many of us do right around the first of the year every year there's something like energy giving about that you know it gives you like a little boost of confidence to be living up to your values or something you know and um it can have ancillary benefits like you can be stopping drinking and suddenly be like a much more productive creative person at least for a spell of time yeah but there's just something so american about it too like deny 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 indulge indulge <laughs> indulge the cycle and this is something we probably talked about with self-care my satire of the wellness industry like this is this is the messaging of all this wellness culture, diet culture stuff. It's either restrict or indulge. You know, you can go from dieting to embracing body positivity to intuitive eating to back to restricting. It's just, it's cyclical and it's trending. You know, it's whatever's trendy. What's trendy right now? Do we know? Have we, have we investigated <laughs> this lately or, or is it, are we trying to ignore it? <laughs> I, I still see people talking about intuitive eating. That feels trendy to me. What is intuitive eating? Intuitive eating? Yeah. Oh, it's learning to listen to your body. So it's it's like somatic awareness. It's it's learning to be more in tune to your body. So you're listening to what your body actually needs. And it, it can also help with um like fullness and hunger, you uh -huh. know, like stopping to say, Am I actually still hungry or am I eating because I'm, you know, stressed or I'm bored? Because a lot of us, you know, and especially women, we've kind of overridden our own hunger signals for so long. We don't even know what it's like to be hungry or full anymore. We know what it's like to be stressed and to eat a chip. <laughs> 
but to actually say, am I hungry? You know, when's the last time I ate a meal or, or why am I halfway through the bag of chips? I have been intermittent fasting for the past several months. I don't eat breakfast anymore. Oh, uh, okay. Tell me more. How is that going? Great. Uh, I, 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 the way that I rationalize it or, or think about it, uh, is that I'm 46. I'm my body's changing. I'm getting older. My metabolism's slowing down. I don't need this like three meals a day thing feels arbitrary to me. Like when it wasn't always this way, certainly for human beings, like this is a relatively recent development in human existence. This, we need three square meals a day. And it, I guess it has something to do with intuitive eating. Like, am I really hungry? Like, do I really need all this food? Like, all Was these... it hard at first? Like, were you hungry in the morning at first? No. As long as I have my, uh, my tea, like I have yerba mate in the morning. If I have like a hot tea, I'm fine. I just get on with it. Um, but I think that it's just about not uh, – like wanting to give my body – like not needing the food, like not needing three meals a day. Like I've often – it's actually stressful to get up and be like, okay, I got to get this meal in me. And then it's like noon all of a sudden. I've got to get another one in me because I need it. And it's like, actually, no, I'm not even hungry. Why am I eating all this food? And uh, the, the second thing is like I like the idea of giving my body a rest from having to like process all this food. Like my body. I feel like this, the Stoics would have been really into this. Yeah, and so it's just sort of like feeling it out, kind of intuitively. Skipping breakfast is the easiest, just because it doesn't impinge on any kind of social obligation. Not that I have any, but if I did, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like if you're skipping dinners every night and your friends are like, "Hey, let's go get dinner," and you're like, "Sorry, I'm intermittent <laughs> fasting. I don't eat dinner anymore." Yeah, and if even if you had like a breakfast meeting, you could just show up at the breakfast meeting and be like, "I don't eat breakfast, but I'll have a coffee," and people would be like, "Okay, you know, whatever." Um, but it's just easiest for me. And the other thing that I notice is that when I do eat lunch, I'm fucking hungry, and it feels good to be like hungry mm. and to eat, you know, like I know that I'm hungry by the time I get there. Uh, and it just, I don't know so far so good. It's not about like weight loss. I don't, I haven't noticed any huge weight loss or anything, but that wasn't why I was really doing it. I was just doing it because it sounded like logical to me based on my own needs and my own phase of life. Yeah. So I don't know, but it's also trendy. So I'm again, like <laughs> I'm on the fucking internet getting, getting hit with these links and I'm following them and suddenly I'm not eating breakfast anymore. Am I a fool? No, you're not a fool. Okay. That's all I wanted to hear. <laughs> I mean, isn't this just what life is? It's like a series of experiments until we die. It's just like, well, I'll try this. I'll try that. Right. But I don't want to be so impressionable that I'm constantly like jerking around to a point where it's like, like a pathology or, you know, it's, mm. it's unhelpful. Do you know what I'm saying? There, there is, there does have to be like some line. You like, if I wanted to keep experimenting, I could like shift every day. You know, there's always going to be something out there. You know, this, you've been, you've spent time mired in the wellness industry, you know, like yeah. it's uh it's endless, you know? And one of the things that I find so frustrating about like, Okay. I mean, it's about a multitude of things. Wellness being one of them is that like the, the verdicts are always changing. You know, it's like, oh, I remember as a kid, carbohydrates gave you energy. You should eat them before you did sports. It was like so important to like have pasta the night before a soccer game and all this shit. And right. Like, 
then they became the devil and then it was fat that was the devil and you shouldn't eat fat and like like it just after a while i go oh my god like does anybody know anything it just becomes a muddle to me <laughs> right yeah this is the this is the the trend cycling of of health and wellness so where do you land like where do you go like how do you get ground under your feet. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you get to a place of equilibrium with it where you make some sort of system that works for you? Or is there some resource that you found that you feel like is credible? <laughs> well, the question to ask yourself is like, could I see myself doing this for the long term? But it sounds like with your plan, like you could see yourself skipping breakfast for the long term. It doesn't mean you'll never eat breakfast again, but it'll work for you. But it's like when I thought about being sober for the rest of my life, that filled me with terror because it felt like I was losing something. And it, it kept me from changing my habits for a really long time because I couldn't imagine myself doing it for the long term. But then I tried it in the short term and it was great. Maybe so. I'll do that. Yeah, I've, I've had, you know, I've toyed with it. I feel like, like there are moments when I'm able to tell myself, like, you know what, considering the chaos of urban existence, and raising a family and all the stresses that come with all of like everyday normal human life. As long as you're not somebody who's, who's like wired up for like addiction, you know, really addictive behavior where you're going to drink like, you know, 10 gallons of wine or whatever. Um, it might even be good to have like a, like one or a little like moderate alcohol intake to sort of like, you kind of do need a buffer, like, right. Or like a little edge off, like, <laughs> It's hard, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Like, there's a lot coming at people. Um, and I know there are different ways. Like, you can exercise. You could have sex. You could do all sorts of different things that, like, will help you to relieve stress. But, you know, day to day, I sort of get the idea that, like, you know, having a glass of wine could potentially be of benefit, like, to your cardiac health. Like, that makes some sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Yeah. So... Um, Judaism, uh, like that's another Judaism, <laughs> Judaism is another thread through the book, like the Jewish experience. I think, uh, the dystopia that we've been living through, you know, particularly when Trump was still in office, it became unnervingly plausible to think that we could see another Holocaust, at least to me, um, in, like, are you Jewish, Brad? No, but I spirit like I in spirit I kind of am. I'm I'm Catholic, but I feel an affinity oh, with Oh right, you're Catholic. You're an honorary Jew. You're an honorary member yes. of the tribe. I feel an affinity. I always have um and uh, or I not always, but I had Jewish friends growing up and I don't know, I've always felt like simpatico uh with the Jewish sensibility and yeah. uh my Israeli masseuse. <laughs> right, right. Um so I don't know. I don't know if you felt that. It seems like you did through the poems that it was like getting a little scary the way things were coming unhinged. And, and if not scary and in like a, another Holocaust is imminent sense, it became scary in the way that it made what previously seemed unthinkable to me thinkable. It was like mm -hmm. it was very easy, I think, in the past maybe to or in like my younger years to be like, God, how fucked up were things in Germany in 1933? <laughs> Like, right, right. So, so I got engaged right before the pandemic to my boyfriend of almost 10 years. And so I was planning a wedding during the pandemic until the pandemic happened. We postponed the wedding plans, but we ended up just getting married this summer. Congratulations. Thank you. And we got really lucky on the timing. But, um, so my partner of 10 years, um, 
is Jewish. I'm half Jewish. My father's side is Jewish. My mother's side is not. Um, but he has always, his grandparents are Holocaust survivors. And he has always been much more anxious about anti-Semitism and about the possibility of another Holocaust or another Hitler in the United States. That's much more palpable to him than it is to me. And I think for good reason, because he has a much closer connection to it. Um, but it's almost like the Holocaust has always been a part of our relationship. Like when we go on vacation to Europe, um, you know, we went to a transit camp in the Czech Republic, like Holocaust tourism is a part of our vacationing. So <laughs> it's always present in our life. So I have a poem in the book about cat catastrophe tourism and eating ice cream outside a Nazi cafe. So for me during the pandemic, um, as, as surreal as it was to be living through it, I kept thinking, you know, but at least it's not. I mean, it's not really like Nazi Germany because there was a lot of hysteria around the Trump election that we were about to enter, you know, Berlin in 1933. And I thought all that was overblown. Um, and so I've it's not that I'm comparing the pandemic to the Holocaust. It's actually that I'm like contrasting them because I actually think compared to um, what my husband's relatives went through, like we had it pretty OK inside our suburban uh, townhouse, you know, getting food delivery. Like, it was okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think it was just, like, the possibility that things could go sideways like that again. Or just, like, the, just like an understanding of how it could happen just got, like, a lot more intense and immediate. Um, yeah, and there's always, there's always like, a scapegoat group, right? Because the Asian Americans were discriminated against as scapegoats during the pandemic, and then there was a rise in anti-Semitism. So... It is true that, you know, Jews, Jews have historically been a scapegoat um, during hard times. So that is true. Yeah. And then not to mention, like, all the people at the border and the kids at the border and what were essentially camps. Yes. Um, with the chain link and the, you know, the shortage of blankets and all the rest. I mean, just like kind of nightmarish and. Yes. And hidden and evil. So, you know, it's crazy to, to say that we've done all that as a country and that we've kind of lived through it or been yeah the, the, it. the backlog of people being able to apply for asylum because it's like you know my husband is alive because his grandparents were refugees they came here to america they were allowed to come in and that's why he's alive today so it's like it's upsetting to me that all these people can't who deserve asylum can't even apply yeah that's a mess that's like what the whole country is supposed to be about, you know, that right. you, you're in a really shitty, untenable political situation that's threatening your life or your ability to exist in a humane way. And you're supposed to be able to come here. Uh, right. You know, so what it's making me think about, though, talking about all this stuff, especially like the catastrophe tourism um, and just the immediacy of the Holocaust still for generations of Jews who are at a remove, like generationally mm -hmm. speaking, like, you know, one or two or three or four generations or whatever, is this notion of trauma and trauma response. Yes. Um, you know, I've had conversations on this show in the past about how trauma gets coded into our DNA and like passed down. Mm -hmm. uh, I forget what that's called. There's like a epigenetics. word. Epigenetics. Yeah. And then uh, I'm thinking about like, the past five years for me, uh, you know, the Trump presidency plus the pandemic, I have often thought like, what is this doing to us? I think you're concerned mm -hmm. with this as well in your, in your collection. Like how are we processing this? Um, how are my kids processing this, you know, homeschooling and wearing masks and 
you know, they seem to be handling it fine in the manner of children, but we don't know exactly how this is imprinting on them. And I think it's plausible to imagine that like 25 years into the future, we'll still be behaving in ways that are a response to this um, or talking about it as if it were yesterday. You know, it seems like that big of a period in history or am I, am I overdoing it? No, I think you're right. I, one detail from the pandemic that's not in the book, but that sticks in my memory is my friend who has toddler daughters who had to get weekly COVID tests for their preschool. And so then they would play COVID tests with their stuffed animals and they would stick paintbrushes up the noses of their stuffed animals. So this kind of like play therapy for them, but it's, it's you know, that's how they can process what's happening. Um, but yeah, I'm sure you're right. Like in five years, let's say we get out of this, and in five years, there's going to be another virus, right? And it's going to just trigger a fear response in all of us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm just like, I'm sort of fingers, cr I'm crossing my fingers that these vaccine makers and uh, scientists are going to have, like, hopefully there's an impetus now for proactive development of vaccines to be, I know they were already sort of doing that, but my God, like, it, it seems like there would be a, an overwhelming consensus among all subsets of the human population to try to guard against this somehow better than we have. Yeah. Well, um, I get the, like, is this, is this the major event of our lifetimes or is this the first right. <laughs> major pandemic of more to come? Yeah. Or, or just like, I mean, you know, I thought I'd never see crazier shit than nine 11. You know, I was like, oh, like, this is my Pearl Harbor. Like, you know, no matter how right, we, right. we all like, you know, got our American flags out or whatever and thought that that was going to be the worst we saw. And, you know, it was awful, but like 3,000 people died, right? And now we're in the pandemic and we're at like pushing like 620. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, I mean, I think the scale of what has happened is slow, slow it's people are slow to realize i think myself included like just what this means i want to say that there are 110,000 orphans in the united states alone covid orphans wow you know and like the ripple effect it's not just the person who died it's the children they leave behind right it's the siblings and parents and aunts, you know, everyone who loves them, friends, like everybody gets affected by this. Like it is a colossal human catastrophe that I think it's pretty difficult to grapple with. I mean, we can see like a story on CNN or on the feed or whatever about, you know, somebody like these, you know, you see these stories about like kids who lost both their parents to COVID and you're just like, your heart is just shattering or the family who's like, you know, in that very small percentage of people who lost a child to COVID, mm -hmm. you know, and you just like, oh, but these stories, like by the hundreds of thousands, just for the victims alone, and then you start to extrapolate out to everybody who's affected, and it's millions of people that this has touched just in our country. Yeah. So it's a, it's a big experience, like mathematically and otherwise. Yeah, it's very hard. And I say this in the book, but it's like very hard to hold it all in your head at one time. And it's, it's not because we're, we're insensitive or uncaring or not compassionate enough. It's just, it's so big that you can't think about it all at one time. It's, it's, it defies, it defies sense. Hmm. Well, um, political transformation. 
that we talked about with respect to self-care and BinderCon, the work that you did, the, um, the Freelance Feminist, the group on Facebook, like for people who are listening who don't have context, I would, I would recommend listening to Lee and I's previous conversation as kind of a, these are kind of bookend conversations to me. Um, but I want to talk to you about your politics and this transformation that you made and to ask about how it might have evolved since the last time we spoke. Mm. Um, because you formed this group around a shared identity of, and forgive me if I'm, you know, correct me if I'm characterizing it wrong, but it was feminists who were, I think, particularly concerned about women in the workplace and women. It was for women writers. It okay. was for women writers. And it, it wasn't necessarily political or feminist at the beginning. It just became kind of de facto feminist because it was named after a Mitt Romney joke. Okay. It was named after Mitt Romney saying he had binders full of women. And so we were the binders full of women writers. Right. So it was assumed that we were left wing, but we never like explicitly said this is for, you know, liberal women writers. We just said this is for women writers, but that's where some of the conflict and it continues to this day. I'm no longer a part of the group, but the conflict continues to this day. Is it is it accurate to say that it cannibalized itself? <laughs> yeah, and continues to do so. Okay. So, and your your poems reference this, you know, the way that everybody sort of attacked Lori Moore for that article in The New Yorker where she talked about how Donald Trump's voice had like an anesthetizing effect on her. Yeah. Like, I find it very exhausting the way that I think most of us, right? Most of us find Twitter exhausting the way that Twitter comes down on people and picks out its enemy of the day. And everybody just goes all in on attacking somebody and performing virtue. And uh, I, yeah, this, this is something I've changed my mind about. And there's a poem in the collection called heretic. That's about religion. But this is what I resist is like, I find myself resisting any rigid dogma, whether that's from the wellness industry or that's from feminist politics, because I was so deep in it when I was running this Facebook group and running this conference. I would say that I made feminism my religion and I was always on guard for thinking or saying or doing something that wasn't feminist. So I was like constantly surveilling myself and it was a horrible way to live. I think too, you referenced the, uh, like the refusal to believe in the irredeemability of a person and like, look, I'm with you there like 98 or 99% <laughs> of the way. I do think there are some people who are just too far gone, like who are in like prison for like killing 50 people or, you know what I'm saying? Like there are some people who are just so psycho that I think they're beyond my reach, but where I'm with you is in with the, the bulk of people including people who have transgressed in pretty significant ways. I want to forgive them. That's what all the religious and spiritual traditions in history have advocated for. Uh, it isn't that they, you don't acknowledge the wrong, but we've all done wrong. And mm -hmm. I feel like these witch hunts that happen where people just get canceled and shut out and whatever you want to, I don't know how to talk about it, but you know what I mean? Like somebody becomes a demon and they're essentially cast out of the house and they can't come back. You know, I find myself being like, well, I, I want to like, I, I, they obviously have to want forgiveness and they will have to make changes to address the, the wrong or whatever. I'm not su suggesting no accountability, but I can't bring myself to be like, fuck you forever. You're gone. You know, like that's the part of it where I find myself diverging. 
Right. It's like the Shirley Jackson story, the lottery. It's like someone is chosen and we're all going to stone this person because it, it helps the group stay cohesive. Um, and you just have to hope that it's not going to be your turn this year. Yeah. Everybody. Yeah. People take turns. So, you know, I've, I've, I've read that before too, where people are like, you know, I didn't fully recognize like the, uh, toxicity of this or the insidiousness of this until it got turned on me. Um, I have That's re- what I think. There's like two kinds of people now. There are like people who have been at the bottom of one of these pylons and people who have not yet been at the bottom of one of these pylons. Right. Right. So I, I also think like at a practical level about making positive change, because a lot of times I feel like these pylons are intermingled with very righteous causes. Like women writers joining together around that shared identity and trying to help one another. Like if you just described it, it sounds great. You know, like, yes, like (laughs) good, you know, and these things aren't a bad idea in and of themselves. But what I find, I think, or what I worry about is whether or not like the actual goal, like the stated goal, the noble goal is undercut by like these kinds of like uh, punishing behaviors or pylons or, yep. or just anger, like performances of anger as a way of um, virtue signaling or going online and eliciting sympathy by telling one story of victimhood. Not that those stories are necessarily illegitimate or bad to tell, but you know what I'm saying? Like it's, it, there's a strong incentive structure on social media to be a person to whom wrong has been done. That's That's exactly right. That's a great way to get reciprocity on social likes, faves, retweets, all that kind of stuff. And sometimes it's entirely justified. Someone's sharing a very important story and making an injustice real to other people. It's not always bad, but what I'm saying is that other people are watching that and seeing how much love it's getting on social. And they're sort of scrambling like, well, what's mine? You know? And I just think that like, there becomes a glut of it and some of it is maybe more um legit than others uh if that's Yeah, I have so it. many I have so many thoughts on this, but it's also that, you know, how do you heal from a trauma if you make it a part of your brand online? If you have to keep repeating and reciting the worst thing that ever happened to you, how can you heal from it? Now you're that person that that thing happened to. Yeah, it's like you're, and, and like, yeah, from what I've read, I mean, and I'm not like the expert on this, but one of the most powerful forces in human psychology is identity. Like, like people will go to extreme lengths to protect what they believe to be their identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you are able to break them of that, that is also extremely powerful. I, I want to say I read some study about like prisoners of war, like one of the ways that, um, prisoners of war are broken down psychologically as to like, you know, they have to switch party affiliation or renounce like their allegiance. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And like what, and once they get them to do it in writing, it actually becomes hard to then flip them back the other way. You know, it'd be, it's like so powerful. I'm, 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 uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, paraphrasing it, but I, hopefully yeah. you, you get the idea. And, uh, well, this was the thing is that I was so afraid of being ostracized from the group, even though I was the leader ostensibly of the group. I was the executive director of a nonprofit, but it got to the point where like I was afraid to say what I truly thought because I worried I would be 
ostracized from the group and then I just realized like am I in a cult (laughs) but there wasn't like a there wasn't a clear cult leader because like I was the leader of the group but it was kind of a mob rule there were some certain there was just a certain group of activists that were so vocal and who kind of ruled and we bowed down to them and finally I just I had to leave completely I had to leave Facebook were they may I ask was this mob like the mob element of the Vindercon group was it a left political were they lefties politically oh yeah oh yeah because like what I always argue with friends of mine I'm like you know yeah MAGA and Donald Trump the authoritarian white supremacist right is a true menace and the biggest menace right now probably on the planet from like a political organization standpoint its proximity to great power is terrifying you know and it's there but i think that it's important to point out that the exact same sort of authoritarian mindset could easily exist on the left and oh I yeah th- there's extremism on the left too yeah and and it's like this kind of thing where you know people pile on they decide that somebody needs to be excommunicated like the shirley jackson uh the lottery thing somebody needs to be stoned um to make the group more cohesive and there are these moral codes that everyone's got to adhere to and if you stray from them even slightly you're impure and you're gone the question quickly becomes well who gets to be the arbiter of what exactly the moral code is who defines it for everybody else who's the who's in charge and you can see how there could be an instance where a leader of the left could be the paragon of purity and could rise up in a similar way and suddenly be and a, like a lefty authoritarian. I mean, I, am I wrong? I, oh, yeah, that's totally true. But then, yeah, and I've written a lot about the girl boss. I've become like the expert of on uh, girl boss culture. And I re- wrote a piece last summer that went viral. And I said in that piece, you know, it became very trendy to make feminism part of your branding. So all these all these female founded companies were feminist on the outside and pink on the outside. But when people looked behind the scenes, they said your workplace isn't feminist enough. And they canceled these women. And I just wrote a piece, a follow-up piece a year later because I think what's part of the story and what adds more nuance to the story is that the rise of these female-founded brands relied on online community, right? Glossier is selling their beauty products direct to consumers. Away Luggage is selling direct to consumers. The Wing has an in-person membership and a huge online following. So these women did everything right. They built up these huge fan bases. And then when the fan bases turned against them, there was this this built-in mob. And it didn't even have to just be members of the wing because I'm not a member of the wing, but I could have jumped in the Instagram comments and said, shame on you. So <laughs> it became this like participatory spectator sport during the pandemic that anyone could play along at any time on social media just tearing these women and their companies down and saying, do better. But what I missed was like any opportunity for them to do better. Like they didn't have a chance to prove that they'd learned anything. They were just excommunicated. Yeah. Okay. So this is where I start to get stressed, not just around the wing, but any of these, you know, this phenomena plays out in myriad ways, like not just around feminist interests. It plays out all in literary, like literature is a perfect example. Yep. You could have a dust up in the literary community where somebody gets uh, piled on or is made an example of. And like what I what I get stressed about is that I don't feel like at a practical level it's helpful. I'm like, actually, this isn't advancing the noble cause at all of equality right. or a more egalitarian workplace or uh, better representation and liter- whatever it is, you know, whatever the noble idea is. 
if the motivating energy is vengeance <laughs> uh, and revenge, then what I feel like that's a form of violence in my view and violence begets violence. And, mm. you know, I think there is such a thing as righteous anger. It's very, you know, it's complex to talk about because I don't want to like, you know, I don't want somebody at home who has been the subject of mistreatment for a long time or who has been at the wrong end of injustice for a long time to feel like their anger is invalid. I think there is such a thing as righteous anger and it's totally justified, but mm -hmm. it has to be fuel for positive action that's proactive and practical and aimed at actually effectuating change. And it's delicate and it's difficult. Uh, it's difficult to be on the wrong end of injustice or to feel that anger and to then act and speak in a way that um, doesn't add fuel to the fire or isn't misdirected or doesn't cause more harm, even though that's not the intent. Do you know what I'm saying? Like there needs to be yeah, more, yeah. there needs to be more wisdom in how we advance these causes. And I think like as an example to maybe illustrate a little bit better, it's like, you know, people who are peace advocates, like who are, let's say people are out there trying to advocate for like an end to all wars or violence against the cruelty of animals, like any kind of cause like that. Sometimes mm -hmm. they can be really fucking angry people. <laughs> and I am persuaded by the notion that in order to effectively advocate for peace, we have to be peaceful. It has to start with us individually. If you as an individual are not peaceful and are not operating from that baseline spirit and mindset, you're not going to be an effective advocate for your cause. Mm. And that's not to say that it's easy, but I think it's true. Am I on the right track? <laughs> I have two, two thoughts. One is that, um, I, I burned out on the anger. Like the anger wasn't sustainable. Like I couldn't run on outrage indefinitely. I was outraged. It gave me a lot of energy to start this conference and to think about what are like the practical things I could do that would help, you know, women writers in their careers. But by the end, like I just ran out of steam. Like I couldn't put more gas in that tank. Like I couldn't, I couldn't re refuel. Um, and the other thing that I think about is that, and I'm sure you've noticed this too, is like the hypocrisy and the irony of people on the left who are all for criminal justice reform, um, policing each other and, and calling for this kind of vigilante justice, because this is not, this is not in the same spirit of reforming the criminal justice system. So, you know, the accused have due process and fair hearings and fair trials. This is the opposite of that. Social media is, is not, is not a fair trial. You know, and, and the accused don't really have a chance to say anything except I'm so sorry. Like, that's the only thing we'll accept is the apology. But what if they're not guilty? Well, and what if I, I, I would actually check you there? I would say a lot of times the apology is not accepted. People that's true. Are, like people that they, they want you to apologize. And then as soon as you do, they're like, well, that was a fucking shitty apology. You know, and it's like, man, there's just like no oxygen given at all or any space for somebody to try to change. And that's where I get anxious as a passive viewer of this stuff where I'm like, oh, you know, you've just driven this person into isolation. That's really going to be traumatic and difficult for them and might actually make them angry and bitter. <laughs> and now you've got, an yeah, or now you've got an enemy, you know, uh, or, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, it's like a negative outcome. And I worry that it, it in the, in the, ultimate sense and in the aggregate especially it winds up making us less healthy makes as a society um 
and I don't know the exact right path, but intuitively I'm thinking this is, this can't be it, you know, where you just stomp somebody. And then when they try to say, sorry, you stomp them again, uh, in the, in the public square where everybody's there ready with their stone, you know, ready to try to get their own retweets or whatever. And I'm just like, right. Oof. So I, I hear you. And I, I agree. Like, I think there does need to be social justice. There does need to be change, but I also believe in due process. Like, can't we have both? Right. Right. Um, so as an extension of that, and I want to hear you comment on this because the penultimate poem in the collection, as you referenced earlier, um, alludes to Biden and, you know, he's a fascinating figure to me in terms of the timing. You know, I, I feel like we fetishize the presidency in our political media culture too much, you know, like he's the president and the times chose him and, or her or whatever, you know, <laughs> but I really do think sometimes there is an element of fate to this and you have to match the moment properly mm, to the uh, person to the person and biden as somebody who is really an avatar for grief and it's legitimate grief i mean the guy has been through an incredible amount of extremely painful loss he lost his wife and daughter like a few days after he became a senator in his late 20s in a terrible car accident yeah and then he lost his beloved son Bo, who you know i think he said he's got all my best qualities and none of my worst he was like the golden child um and really i think Biden would not have probably run for president had Bo lived because I think he always thought Bo would be the one who would mm. take it over the finish line. But the point that I'm getting at is that Biden as an avatar for grief and as somebody who really knows how to speak to that experience um, with compassion and authenticity does seem uncannily well-matched for the moment that we were in in 2020 in the aftermath of four years of Trump and especially in the midst of the, of the uh, pandemic. So there's that level of it where I think that maybe loss in the manner of Abraham Lincoln losing Willie um, in the Civil War. You know, you could see the grief written all over Abraham Lincoln's face and all those old um, photographs of him, the famous photographs. But I think that it does deepen a person inevitably or hopefully at least uh, FDR being sort of mm. like a. You know, he was like a to the manner born only child, spoiled in every possible way imaginable, but then he loses his ability to walk. Yeah. And becomes a traitor to his class, essentially. Mm. Um, I don't think those things are incidental. And I also think about, and I realize this is a little bit long winded, but I, I do have a point is that, uh, you know, all the stuff that we've been talking about around the politics of the left and the divisions among the left. I find fascinating to look at Biden through those, through that lens, because he was the least popular choice among so many people I know uh, who loved Elizabeth Warren. I was an Elizabeth Warren guy in the primaries or loved Bernie uh, and just thinks everybody other than Bernie, <laughs> you know, with maybe like Elizabeth Warren with like an asterisk was okay. And, um, and yet, we now sit at a point, and I realize this too is debatable, and there, these divisions still exist, and Biden is still the devil to many people on the left. But I feel like Biden, as a uh, pretty objective matter, if, these, if this infrastructure gets passed and if we are able to change voting rights um, or you know, protect voting rights in the country, could wind up becoming the greatest or one of the greatest um, – 
presidents to lead uh, social social change and economic justice in the country since like LBJ or FDR. I just mean to say that he was the one who was considered super, super moderate, and he mm-hmm. is going to be the one who led the most progressive change potentially in our lifetimes. And maybe it's not enough, and maybe it's got flaws. I'm sure it does. But I just, I just like to point it out because it's like, well, hey, maybe sometimes the one who's best positioned to lead it isn't the one that you think, including me. Like maybe I had it wrong. You know, I'm looking mm. at it now going, maybe this was exactly who we needed. And maybe people can change. I know Biden has some spotty votes in his history, like the crime bill and all this stuff. You know, I'm not denying any of that. But I think like right. if we just castigate him for all these errors in his past and don't give him any room to grow and change and be better, then maybe we deny ourselves this moment. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. Like, that's where my You're thing. You're saying give, give Grandpa Joe a chance. <laughs> yeah, give him a chance. I mean, are, do you give Grandpa Joe a chance or do you? Yeah, he was never, I mean, he wasn't even in my, like, top five. Um, And part of that is me being ageist about his age. Um, But I do think, you know, he, I think he speaks to the exhausted majority. Like, just like you, like, I think my friends were for further left candidates. But so many Americans, you know, resonate with his age and his experience and his demeanor and his he does seem to me such like a Lincoln figure because he's coming to us in this moment of deep division in the country. And he's not coming with anger to stoke the flames the way Trump did. Trump just stoked the division. And Biden's message is about togetherness and unity, which is a very calming message instead of an inflaming message. And even the the poet, the poet at the inauguration, Amanda Gorman, her message in her poem was also about we. So that language of we instead of us versus them, I think is so important for the country. Has he surprised you? Have you been pleasantly surprised at all? Or is that an overstatement? I think here's where I guiltily admit I don't even follow the news of the administration the way I did with Trump. I'm not following it every day the way I once did. But that's nice. That's nice. I feel more relaxed about it. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like, even so, I'm sure you get the big stuff um, and you have some sense of how things are going. Is it better or worse than you Yeah, expected? he's working. I mean, he's working on it. We we had a president who didn't even, like, have email. Like, what? <laughs> he just had Twitter? Like, what? He had Twitter and, like, like his flat screen TV, you know? It's just a... Right. It was a zoo. But I don't know. I, I guess, like... Uh, I guess there might be some lesson in it. And and it's also worth noting that he's only been in office for six months and a lot can change. So we could be having an entirely different conversation, you know, two or three years from now. But so far, I think, uh, I, I feel like it was, a, it's been a lesson to me to not be so fixed in my view and to, uh, to, recognize that people can change. It's also, you talk about ageism. I think I've often joked or even said in, in earnest that like experience is wasted on the old. I often talk about, <laughs> I often talk about how I trust the instincts of the young. And to a large extent I do. Like if young people in mass are all saying the same thing, it usually is right. Uh, or in my view, it has some bearing in truth. Like I think listening to young people who haven't like been, like shorn of their idealism 
um, and who have like a, a lot of future at stake. Like I do believe in the spirit of the young, but I think this has taught me too, that like age and experience and failure and loss, um, you know, there's a, in a lot of like the healthiest cultures in human history, there have been, there has been like a, a pointed attempt to value elders in a way mm -hmm. that American culture does not. We, va you we know, do not. We value youth. <laughs> That's yeah. so true. You know, in, in appearance matters and otherwise. And so I think this has taught me like, you know what? Sometimes it's good to have an old hand at the helm. Um, and another thing that I think is super interesting is how few – how how rarely age is taken into consideration in terms of diversity, you know, that that members of a generation mostly only talk to other members of their same generation. I think if there's more collaboration and mentorship that's intergenerational between the generations, because I think, you know, I'm humble enough to say I could learn from people younger than me and I can learn from people older than me. I think that leads to really interesting conversations because I have felt more and more that I can have more honest uh, real conversations with Gen Xers than I can with millennials. So I joke that I identify as a Gen Xer now because like those I'm, are the most interesting conversations I have. I'm a Gen Xer. I know. Here we are. I feel like, you know, I don't think I, we just, we're just too small. So we didn't get labeled as strongly as millennials and boomers did. So I think as a result of that, it's no like virtue of mine, but I just didn't identify as a, by my generation title. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, right. When, that that's when, a newer thing to identify with a generation. So we're sort of in the middle. And like, I think I just read an article the other day. Cause you, you know, these pieces come out like, I think once a week about like somebody analyzing their own generation, but there is something too, like, you know, generation X being sort of feral. Like we could, when I was a kid, we could just go outside all day. Like, I, right. Like dawn, like from morning until night, I came home at night when my friend Nathan's mom rang a bell. Like, you know, like, like we, no one gave a shit where we were like, you know, I mean, they gave a shit, but it was like, you're just out. I was like riding on my friend's four wheeler at like 50 miles an hour when I was in fourth grade. We were like going off jumps, like without helmets on. I mean, like it was crazy in retrospect, but, um, but I, I think I think your your micro generation like it's like you guys are independent thinkers and you're kind of countercultural and you're just kind of weird and I I find millennials to be more more dogmatic. I think it's be, but I think okay I'm theorizing here so I could be wrong but I think a lot of it too is because you guys uh, have been online your entire lives essentially uh, and so. I think online life and especially social media life lends itself to more groupthink. Um, yes. I had an analog childhood. I didn't get on, I didn't email until college. That was like new, you know, so I'm, I'm there. And so my entire youth was spent, like we had to make like a phone call to like get shit done, you know, <laughs> like go ride our bike to our friend's house, you know, <laughs> like it was, yeah. we didn't just like get on the screen and chat. And so I don't know, maybe there's, I feel kind of, I feel kind of lucky in that sense to have experienced the world without all of this, because I do think some, some of the beauty is lost. Um, I'm not saying the technology is bad, you know, as like a, in like a broad way, but I, I do think it's, you know, I think it's made a lot of us more unhappy, myself included at times, you know, I don't, I'm not sure if this is making us happier. Um, and I think a lot of young people are asking themselves the same thing. I think a lot of young people are not getting on social media. Um, 
And so that'll be really interesting to see. Will there be like a counter revolution? Like, will they say like, this isn't for us? And then Facebook and Twitter will lose that audience. And then what will they do? Yeah, I, I think hopefully that'll happen. I mean, I'm at the point now where I, I read it too much. It's like the, it's the internet to me. Like I don't go to other websites. I just go to Twitter to find out news. Um, <laughs> but I don't write on it, which has taken a lot of the toxicity out of it for me. Like so far, that's where I've gotten. I would love to not look at any of it as much as I do. I still need to get better there. But I kind of feel, and I don't know if you feel this way or some version of it, but I, like more and more, I just have this desire to check the fuck out and like go live in the boonies somewhere and just read books. <laughs> yeah, I find like Otessa Moschweg to be very aspirational. What does she do? I mean, I've talked to her on this show, but what is she doing? She's just not online. Yeah, yeah. She's just not on social media or like Sheila Hetty, like Sheila Hetty will come on Twitter for like a minute and then she'll be like, I hate this place. And then she'll leave. That's sane. Um, but I have, I think I just have this, I have this fear of what would happen to my career if I left. Would I still be relevant if I left? Would people still remember me if I left? That's my fear. That's what keeps me hooked. And that I'm like, like chemically addicted to it also. Yeah. I mean, I think that's very honest and accurate in terms of how a lot of people feel, certainly a lot of writers. And look, you know, for people who have, um, like I still have a Twitter feed for this show as a sense of, out of a sense of professional obligation. I feel bad for my guests if I don't make some attempt at like, you know, sounding the bell for the episode. You know what I'm saying? Like I want to yeah. get the word out somehow and social media is the way to do that, but I just don't run it anymore. Um, but this is this is the paradox that that writers like writers who want to write and publish books in today's publishing industry, not like 10 years ago, but right now, it's like you have to be online, you have to be self-promoting, and then you also have to set these restrictions and boundaries around your social media addiction in order to write the book. And so this is this constant battle between the glow and of the attention that people pay you online and the like uh the monastic existence needed to go deep and write the next book yeah that's a lot you know and then after that you you write the fucking thing and you go through all the hassle of that and then you get it published which is often a process and then the book gets published and then it's like now you got to promote it now you got to like <laughs> You know, a lot of that falls on the author. You know, you've got to go out and, and hustle to make sure that it somehow gets some attention in this glut of, you know, offerings. In all yeah, media. I feel like I'm like a, a one-woman band. Like, I've got cymbals on. I've got a bass drum. Like, I've got, you know, uh, little castanets. And I'm just going around Twitter, like, playing my song, trying to get anyone to pay attention to me. That's how everybody is, though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know how much. And, and like, I'm I'm mystified by people who seem to have a knack for going viral and getting attention. I've talked about this many times, but like, I truly, like, I guess that's a gift. That's its own gift. People who know how to do it. Uh, I'm the opposite of that. <laughs> what's the opposite of going viral? Like, is it just, uh, what's the word? But that's what I am. <laughs> you have to be, the thing is, this is so interesting because last summer my girl boss piece, which was very like critical and cutting about girl bosses and about using feminism for branding, that went viral. It was one of the top 10 most read stories on medium.com for the year. It got 200,000 views. Whoa. 
a year later when I write a more nuanced piece that says, how are we all complicit in this online or how are we all complicit in these call outs did not go viral. Huh. So I didn't say the thing that everyone expected me to hear. or I didn't say the thing that they wanted to hear. Um, so that's part of the virality is like, are you speaking to the moment exactly what everyone wants to hear? Or are you trying to say something with more nuance? Do you have a Substack? <laughs> I don't have a Substack. I have a I have a Mailchimp newsletter for writing for writers about writing that I send out once a week. I feel like Substack because Substack's been throwing money around. They've been paying people these big advances. They need to pay. Yeah, these... I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm famous enough. Bullshit. <laughs> I know the CEO of Substack is listening right now, and he's making a huge <laughs> error in judgment by not having Lee Stein. No, I recommend all to writers. I always recommend they start their own newsletter because you have to build your own audience. You cannot take it for granted that your publisher is going to do that for you. It's just, and then people say like, oh, you think F. Scott Fitzgerald had to think about, you know, who his audience was. It's like, well, you know, I can't compare the publishing industry of today to a hundred years ago. Right. Right. When, when literature was the, like the main event. Right. In our popular media, like there wasn't even, I mean, I guess it was just beginning to compete with movies, but there was no TV. I mean, it's totally different. It's totally it's different. totally different. So the question is like, do you want to accept the parameters of the new normal? Do you want to be angry and rail against it? And then no one publishes your work and you're even angrier. Those are your choices. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I do, I do empathize. I feel like I'm kind of, um, an anachronism or what's the word? Somebody who's just out of step. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just not good enough at social media. I can't, I, I just know about myself that I can't do it well naturally. I'm not good at performing my existence on social media. It takes too much out of me, even if I do do it halfway decently. And then it just, yeah. it's the, the stress and the negative, the worry about what I tweeted. Like I just sent a letter of condolence recently to somebody that I don't know super well, but I read that they were suffering a loss. And I just said, just wanted to say, I'm, I'm sorry to hear this. And I'm sending my condolences and uh, wishing you well. And then I signed it XO Brad, because it was like a condolence letter. And I never heard back, not that they have to write back, but I've been obsessing, like, was it too much to XO on my sign off? Like, is that too intimate? I will, this is the level of tedium and neurosis that I can get to. And so you can just imagine if something like that is bothering me, how like fucked in the head I would get over Twitter. I would tweet right. something and nobody would like it. And I'd be like, was that offensive? Am I bad <laughs> at humor? <laughs> like, I can't do it. I don't have what it takes, you know, and I just had to finally cop to that. And I'm better off not doing it. Like I can do this. Like I like to talk <laughs> to somebody yeah. and have a conversation where I get to like verbalize the neuroses rather than like condense it to 150 characters or whatever. Yeah. Well, I think podcasting is a superior form to tweeting because it allows for dialogue because tweeting it's, it's just people monologuing at each other. And like crosstalk, no, no real, like no real attempt to like hear people or something. And, yeah. and also just like, like you say, everybody's a one man band trying to get attention and I get it, you know, everybody's got to eat. So I don't want to dog people who are trying to hustle and find a readership or whatever. But um, when you think about millions of people all wearing drums <laughs> and like symbols on there, it's sad. It makes me sad to think about it. everyone's out there just like, I'm thinking of like that 
you know, that sort of sad trombone music (laughs) (laughs) trying to keep rhythm. And it's like, whew, man, you know, that's a, it's a tough sled, but I, I still, if I'm being like emotionally honest, like it really would be fun. I cannot imagine what it would be like to be a person on Twitter who had like a million followers. Like if this shit is as addictive as it is with like my piddly amount of followers, I cannot imagine like what it must be like to get that kind of reciprocity. You could be like, I ate Cheerios for breakfast and everyone's just like, oh man, amazing. Like clapping. (laughs) Everything you say gets like that kind of response at a certain level of, I think, followership or whatever. That has got to be like crystal meth. Like how do people even do anything after they get to that point? I do feel like the more followers I get, the harder it is for me to imagine ever leaving because it feels like I'm it, it's like I'm building this mansion and I just keep adding on rooms to the mansion. And then I'm like, you want me to just walk away from this? How many do but you in, got? What are you where are you at? Um, Eight thousand something. Yeah. I mean, you know, so it's that, a lot. It's a lot. But it's like and that's and it's addictive, like even there. But I think like it's, you know, compared to like some of these people who have like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. Right. And the whole thing is an illusion because I have 8,000 followers, but I'll tweet something. And if like the tweet does really well, I'll get like a hundred likes. <laughs> and a lot of times it's the same people. Like you have right. your, like, your super fans. It's always the same people who are responding. So like 7,947 of those people probably didn't even – like I'm always like – I feel like everyone's muted me. <laughs> <laughs> like this is my theory of Twitter is that I think I have 8,000 followers or whatever, but I really have like 46 because everyone's <laughs> just like, would this fucking guy shut up about his podcast? <laughs> They're like, we really like Brad. We don't want to unfollow. We don't want to hurt his feelings. Yeah. We'll just mute him. Yeah. We think he's a nice guy, but the tweeting is really mediocre and <laughs> we know he has a podcast. So we're just going to just quietly mute him um and i actually as a, i've muted a couple people in my lifetime like never i've never gone on like a big muting spree and i think i feel bad about muting for that reason it's like even if they don't know it's like oh if they knew that i muted them like they would never <laughs> forgive me it's like such a hardcore thing to do because it's like secret and just like lethal like i'll never even see you again you know um but this is what social media forces us to confront you know right. these, these sorts of dire choices um Okay. Well, I mean, I feel like we covered a lot and I love, uh, the collection. I, I just love you as a thinker and a writer. I'm glad you're doing the work that you're doing and that you're sort of standing in the tower that you've chosen to stand in because, uh, you tend to address a lot of questions that I have sitting over here in my podcast tower <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> my Garrett, whatever you want to call it, my turret. I don't even know what the word is, but uh, I always appreciate the time with you and, uh, always, I mean, are you working on something else is, I guess the question I always ask people at this point in the conversation. I have an idea for my next novel and I'm kind of like researching and collecting things for it, but I have not started writing it yet. Any hints about the general vector? Like, what is it? I want to write a Gothic novel. Okay. I will accept that. I I like, I, I totally respect the need to be cryptic at this stage. Um, just for like creative protective reasons, but also because you probably don't fully know yet, I would guess. <laughs> it's very early. It's yeah. very early, but I, I, I do want to write fiction again because I feel, I feel more free to say what I really think when I'm writing fiction than when I'm writing nonfiction. Hmm. That makes sense. And how do you characterize your mood about humanity, the moment that we're in the times that we're living through 
the future ahead of us? Like, do you have any hope? Like, are you, like, how do you navigate it without getting too, like, suffocatingly bleak or? I would say my wedding gave me a lot of hope, like, because just people were so happy to be together. It had been such a long time and it just reinforced for me how important real life community is because I've always been an internet evangelist. I've always said like the internet is real life, like online friends are real friends. But the thing is I've always used the internet to as like a springboard to meet people, but I always wanted to meet them in real life. Like yesterday I I got to meet one of my Twitter friends I made during the pandemic. We got to have an actual drink together in Brooklyn. So that's the point of the internet for me is that it can lead to real life meet space um, gathering. So I'm, I'm hopeful that, um, we will find, we will find new ways of being together in community in person, because I think that's the only thing that can be the antidote to the toxicity and the misinformation of social media. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think you talk about internet friends and how like the internet can be a springboard to meeting in real life. What I have found, and I have said this many times through the years is that if you get to know somebody online and you meet them in person, it's almost always good. I, in fact, I don't think I've ever had a bad experience where it was like, whoa, this person is like <laughs> radically different than what I thought. Like they're almost exactly what you think when you meet them in person. It's just the actual thing instead of the avatar, you know, but I, I don't think that the social media friend experience or the online friend experience is inauthentic if it's done in good faith. Like, I, I don't know. I think it's a great way to meet people, but I think it, like you say, it's important to take it off the screen and to meet in person. And we do have to find ways to sit in rooms with people and communicate with people, especially people who might not see things exactly the way we do. That is lost in our present society to disastrous effect, the way that we're all siloed. Uh, Yeah. And I think the lack of religion and the lack of religious practice, I think, I think uh, a house of worship can be a place where people with different politics, not always, but sometimes it can be a place where people with different politics come together to worship. And as Americans become less and less religious, we're losing that hub of our community. And mm -hmm. so we, we have to, I'm not going to tell people to become religious, but we have, we have to find new um, centers for community for the secular. Well, and I think religions need to change. Um, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, the reason everybody's f- fleeing them is because they're no longer relevant. Mm. They're not speaking to the problems that we have now. And they have outmoded ideas that they're clinging to out of some sense of tradition or, you know, ingrained uh, patriarchy or, you know, all the different reasons that these things sort of persist. But, you know, I think religion needs to look at, like the religious leaders need to look in the mirror and say, well, why are people not showing up? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, and because, you know, I know you read this. I wrote this piece about the uh, Glennon Doyle and the new Instavangelist that was in the New York Times. And I've actually, like, connected with a lot of religious leaders that are trying to do just this, that are, like, fascinated with why people are leaving. They're trying to connect to young people. They're they're trying. They're genuinely trying um, to build to build congregations uh, with progressive values. So So I have hope for that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, I had a conversation with Matt Bell. That's who's I've probably talked about it with more than one person, but he comes to mind. Um, cause we talked about it after the interview as well, but I, I had him on the show and I've been having this feeling about like, Oh, you know, I feel like community is what people want, 
people feel too isolated. When you live in an urban environment like Los Angeles, the logistics of doing anything socially are extremely difficult because of traffic and bullshit and work schedules. And um, so you can have good friends, but you only see them like once a quarter. And I think like over and over you hear people say like, well, if I could live in a, my ideal world, like me and all my friends would all live on the same block, you know, like that sort of thing. Yeah. And I keep thinking like, you know what? I think because of that issue, just people's loneliness and isolation and desire for connectivity coupled with cost of living issues, especially in these urban, you know, centers where the price of a house is ridiculous and yeah, so many people can't afford it that, uh, and then also with like the, the fading away of religion for so many people in these urban centers, especially, I think, mm-hmm. um, there could be a trend where people start to collectivize on their own and form community housing co-ops. And I know this sort of thing has existed before. But I just sense that like there's a trend coming where this sort of thing is going to be done in a new way and where people are going to like like either, you know, hire contractors to build them like a house for like four families mm-hmm. or like a, an, a, a building for four families with like a communal shared space in the middle and everyone's going to get to sort of like they do for seniors. You know, I feel like seniors have this more than younger people. But I think Right. It, so again, it's like intergenerational. How could we make this happen? Or, or yeah. And so anyway, I, I had this conversation. I have this sort of vague hunch and like maybe sort of vague desire to live in one of these places, you know, where like, can we all live on the same block or, you know, I like the idea of having my own private space, but I also would love to just like walk out my door and be like, Hey there, buddy, you know, like let's yeah. have dinner at our shared like park space or co- courtyard or whatever. And, um, I read in the New Yorker the following week after this Matt Bell conversation, this article about this company called the Treehouse. I did read that as well. Yeah. Based in Los Angeles where there, and of course it's like Silicon Valley doing this, Yeah, <laughs> like, you know, and going to monetize it and pump venture capital into it and all the things that happen. But I think there, I mean, it just it kind of affirmed to me two things. One, that my instincts were decent and two, that I'm always like two years late or five years late. <laughs> Like, I think I'm having some great revelation and it's like, no. Maybe if you were more competitive, Brad. That's it. I need to get on this stuff earlier or be like, you know, I don't know. But I I, I do wonder at what's going to happen with it. And I guess I sort of like the idea of the way that all these different generations are living in this same shared space and kind of had a pod during the pandemic and... I could see yeah, something like this. Yeah, it's interesting because there's, there's so much chatter online about community, 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 and they mean online communities. But really, like, the deep yearning within us is actually for this face-to-face community. I think that's what we yearn for. And, you know, yeah. And so then again, through my Buddhist lens, I think about, like, mo- monastic life, which I'm, like, endlessly fascinated with. And I think it's because of that. Mm. It's because you have everybody who's, like locked into a project of trying to land at human sanity <laughs> and like ethical, um, ethical living. So at that like basic level, I'm like, wow, what's it like to live? And even there, like actually living in a face-to-face community is really fucking hard. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that as a person who's been in a long-term relationship and is now married, I know that as a married person with kids and like what chaos that is. And it's always difficult. And then you think about like living in a shared space it's very easy to idealize it, but of course it would be hard. And of course there would be conflict. And, but that's the thing is that I think a, a, an arrangement like that would give us the opportunity to navigate these things 
and to learn how to resolve conflict. Whereas when you're doing it all online, you know, you just get to sort of like throw your stones and then shut your laptop and feel like that sugar high of validation or whatever, or vindication. And you never really have to like sit down with a person at breakfast the next morning or like have a drink with them and sort things out. That's right. So on that note, um, I would like to invite you to join my commune here in Los Angeles. <laughs> you don't mind, do you? Uh, we could be I'd neighbors. Yeah, to. I'm sure you would. I'm sure you would. You're like, actually, Brad, I, uh, like an annual podcast at a distance of 3,200 miles is plenty enough <laughs> for me. Uh, but I love talking with you. Congratulations on uh, What to Miss When, the new poetry collection. And I will look forward to your gothic novel whenever it materializes. Thank you, Brad. Thanks for having me on again. All right, you guys, there you go. Lee Stein. What do you think? Did I talk too much? Was it just enough? I don't know. Her new poetry collection is called What to Miss When. It is available now from Soft Skull. You can find Lee online at leestein.com. You can follow her on Twitter. Her handle over there is at rhymes with B. That's B-E-E. At rhymes with B. You can also find her on Instagram. Her handle there is, I think it's just Lee Stein, at Lee Stein. You can track her down. Once again, the poetry collection is called What to Miss When, available from Soft Skull. Go get your copy immediately and meditate on what has happened to all of us this past year and change. It's been weird. And Lee is good at mapping all of it. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Did you know that? The entire archive of this show is available to you, the listener, free of charge. That's more than 700 episodes. That's a lot of content. It's all there. I make it available for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you like this show, if you listen regularly, if you get something from it, if you find it beneficial... I hope you'll consider supporting the show. For as little as $1 a month, you can support the show over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. There are different tiers, different levels of support. As you move up the scale, you can get stuff. You know how this works. T-shirt, tote bag, coffee mug, sticker. I'll write you a postcard by hand. I will wish you a happy birthday. I'll send you a happy birthday, like, voice message. Come on, people. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod pod if you have something to say to me if you'd like to tell me for example that i talk too much that i need to tone it down you can email me at letters at other letters at other the other people podcast is now available on youtube did you know that the entire archive is on youtube the other people with brad listy podcast has its own youtube channel search for it by name be sure to use the funny spelling, Other PPL with Brad Listy. Every episode is there. Go get it. Subscribe. Smash the subscribe button. Just smash it. The Other People podcast has its own official app. Did you know that? Okay, I just got to stop. You guys understand everything, right? I just ran out of time is what happened. Just didn't, you know. Right? Okay. There's actually one more. <laughs>